Good afternoon. It is certainly a blessing to be here. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that we have uh, to come together, um, both here and, and from afar, to spend time uh, being nourished by God's Word, uh, praising our Father in Heaven. I appreciate Luke reading that passage from Isaiah. Um, I, I want to start today by reading another passage, though. Uh, if, if you want, we're going to get back to the Isaiah passage uh, here in a little bit, but I want to start by reading a passage from Joel. So if you want to open your Bibles to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. Does that sound a little bit familiar uh, to you? Has anything like this happened in our generation? Well, that's what Joel thought about the locust plague that they were experiencing at that time. Um, and yet, I think that's how we feel about what we're going through today. This is something entirely unprecedented in our lifetimes, at least. Um, but here, God in the book of Joel tells his people to awake in verse 5. He tells them to lament in verse 8. He tells them to be ashamed in verse 11. If you look down in verse 13 and 14 of Joel chapter 1, he then says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land, the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Here, because of this locust plague and the, the resulting famine that they were experiencing, uh, it seems that they weren't even able to bring the offerings to the Lord, the grain offering, the drink offering. They didn't have the food to, to bring it unto the Lord. Uh, and so he tells them, mourn, fast. Uh, and I, I wonder, as this ec epidemic that we're experiencing gets worse and the economic impact becomes more and more evident, I wonder if something like this should perhaps describe our response as a nation, uh, or at least our response as God's people. Uh, I, I love a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I've probably used it many times, but, but he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is God trying to wake us up? and turn us towards him. I think any pain, any trial that we experience, God allows to happen that his people might turn towards him, might recognize their dependence on him, um, regardless of whether that be some judgment or, or simply some test, some trial that we're experiencing. So if so, how should we respond? Well, later on in chapter 2 of Joel, verse 13 and 14, he, uh, verse 12 and 13, rather, he says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
I want to focus today on one part of what we see here that we may not be as familiar with. You, you see it here in uh, both in verse 14 of chapter 1 as well as again in chapter 12 of verse 2. He encourages the people in turning back to the Lord and making their mourning evident to consecrate a fast. To come to the Lord with fasting. Fasting may be something that in our culture and in the church today is not a very common thing. It may be something that we're not as familiar with. And so I want us to spend some time looking at the biblical concept of fasting. Is this something that God uh, intends for his people to take part in today? Is this something that we as Christians should consider, especially in a situation such as this? Is fasting something that went out with the burning of incense and animal sacrifice and sackcloth and ashes? Or is it something that should be practiced by God's people today? Now, I want to make it very evident from the beginning of this sermon uh, I am not speaking very much from experience. I, I, I'm not at all an, an expert on, on fasting. What, what, what I want to do is share my study with you. As Aaron and I have been considering this in our own lives, uh, I want to sh- share what we see within God's Word uh, and encourage you, as I'm encouraging myself, to, to give thought to this. Should Christians fast? Today. Well, let's start with some reasons that we don't fast. And I think one that maybe very legitimate reason that we don't fast, at least not the way that we see some of the Jews doing um, in the New Testament, is because we are continually warned against its abuse. A great deal of what the Bible has to say about fasting is warning us how not to fast. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is talking to um, the people in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he talks about not doing our deeds to be seen by men. Uh, and he says here in Matthew six sixteen, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Here is an abuse that they're simply doing it to be seen of men, uh, an expression of pride rather than an expression of humility towards God. We uh, today in Luke 18 read about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what, what does the Pharisee say? He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Here again, we see fasting being something that is uh, presented as prideful, hypocritical and outward show of spirituality, not intended to draw close to God, but rather to lift oneself up above others, to make one feel more holy and righteous and superior, not necessarily to help one be more holy and righteous. And so it is legitimate that we give thought to uh, the the abuse of this, and not only do we see this in the New Testament in Jesus' words, but in the Old Testament many times in Zechariah chapter 7, Verse 5 and 6, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5 and 6, God says, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Whether they were feasting or fasting, God is saying, you, you weren't doing it for me. You were doing it for yourselves, for your own desires, for their own comfort, to commemorate their own loss, to make them feel better about their condition while they're in captivity, not to mourn what their sins had done to their relationship with God. To make them more confident in their outward show of spirituality. 
And that brings us to this rebuke that we see in Isaiah 58 that Luke read for us. Uh, Here in Isaiah 58, starting in verse 2, rather starting in verse 3, they say, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Here they are going through all the motions. They, they were fasting, depriving themselves of food. They had the sackcloth. They had the ashes. They just didn't have the repentance. They didn't have the heart that was genuinely interested in God's will and God's ways in developing his character. There was no transformation of character here, just an outward show. So the Bible continuously warns us against thinking that we are going to be pleasing in God's sight simply by some outward show of humility. Um, Here, they treated fasting like some magical formula of spirituality that would allow them to to level up and and gain God's favor. Um, Yet, as with any outward discipline of our service to God, it's valueless if our heart is not first where it needs to be. And and Paul warns us against this misplaced focus as well. In Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, Paul's talking about uh, false teachers who were trying to impose certain restrictions. Um, Here in verse 20 of Colossians chapter 2, he talks about those who are saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And later on down in verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. And stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if we think that simply by depriving our body of food or any other pleasure for that matter, and that that within itself is going to make us more spiritual, uh, then we are deceiving ourselves. There's a reason that God doesn't give us any rules or regulations about such ascetic practices. Even if we do engage in fasting, we need to recognize that our faith cannot be in the practice of fasting. Our faith is in the God whom we are seeking through fasting. Um, But that ultimately is the case with any outward discipline of our service to God. And so we need to guard against these attitudes, these abuses that are talked about here. However, I think there may be another reason that we don't think much about fasting today. And that's because it is very countercultural to the self-indulgent and prosperity-focused world in which we live. For, for many, Christianity has become more of a self-help religion. We hear about the health and wealth gospel. Many, to many, Christianity is just kind of a spiritualized version of the American dream. Uh, that if we serve God, then our life is going to all be put together um, and, and we think that Jesus certainly wouldn't want us to deprive of our, ourselves of any good thing. After all, Jesus came to give us life, and life more abundantly, right? And yet we see that simply in a, a physical way. But if that's how we view Christianity, I, I hope 
our time studying today will be a little bit of a reality check. Uh, because Jesus didn't say, be true to yourself. He said, deny yourself. Jesus didn't say, live life to its fullest. He said, take up your cross. Jesus didn't say, follow your heart. He said, follow me. And Jesus himself started his earthly ministry by spending 40 days fasting in the wilderness. So perhaps this is something that we need to give some thought to. Perhaps this is something that has a place, has an appropriate place in our service to God. Does God want us to fast? Well, there's no question that fasting was a part of Old Testament worship. We, we see that the one commanded fast was on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 26, says, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be to you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict your souls and present a food offering to the Lord. Later on in verse 29, it says, For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. This phrase, to afflict yourselves, or afflict the soul, or chasten the soul, is a word that, a phrase that was used to describe this practice of fasting. In fact, if you look in Acts 27 and verse 9, uh, it refers to the Day of Atonement as the fast. And so here is the one command that God gave his people to on this day, as they commemorated their sins before the Lord, to spend it afflicting their souls, humbling themselves through the practice of fasting. Now, that's the only time in Scripture we see a fast commanded, divinely instituted. However, as we read earlier in Joel 2, we see that, that God certainly did present the practice of fasting as something that had an appropriate place, uh, even outside that one day a year that he had commanded it. Joel 2 12 and 13, we read, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And so there are times that God indicated that it was appropriate, as they were mourning over their senses, they were seeking to return to him, uh, not just on one day out of the year, but to consider this practice of fasting. And fasting was acknowledged uh, by God in that sense as an appropriate accompaniment to repentance and to godly sorrow. And we see this really throughout the Old Testament. If, if you want to have a list of people in the Bible who fasted, um, that's a pretty large list. You have Moses and David, Elijah and Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. We, we could name quite a few more, the people of Nineveh. Um, we see it continually throughout the Old Testament, and as we'll see even into the New Testament. But this was not solely a product of ancient culture or Judaism that they came up with on their own. We see clearly from Joel 2, this is something that God put his stamp of approval on, that God even commanded in the Day of Atonement. But is this just an Old Testament thing? Well, we see Jesus expected his disciples would fast. Remember, we, we referenced Matthew 6 and Jesus' warning against fasting to be seen by men. But did you notice his language there? In Matthew 6 and verse 16, it says, And when you fast, do not look gloomily like the hypocrites. Here Jesus, in his language, implies that his disciples at some point would fast. 
And in that section, that's accompanied by giving to the poor and making sure that you do that the correct way, praying, making sure that you're doing that the correct way, and fasting. Many times when I've gone over that passage in the past, I've kind of focused on the first two, and then when I get to the third one, I say, well, okay, well, that may not really apply to us. Well, does it apply to us? It seems that Jesus is implying that it does. He puts it on the, the same, in the same sermon, right next to those other things. Uh, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. And even at the end of that section, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Clearly, fasting is something that God, when done properly, views as commendable. Look also in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, here we see Jesus makes it clear that not all occasions are proper for fasting. There was a contrast between how John's disciples and the Pharisees fasted, and Jesus' own disciples seem to, by and large, have refrained from fasting. And so here in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So clearly, not all times are appropriate for fasting. Um, Jesus makes it clear that in that time, as they were day in, day out, in the presence of the Son of God, uh, it was not a time for fasting. However, he says there will come a time when my disciples will fast. The implication there is that uh, once Jesus does leave, this will be a practice that would characterize his people. Maybe not in the same way as John's disciples and the Pharisees, but it's certainly not something that should be entirely removed from the vocabulary of God's people. And we see as well that the early church did fast. Yes, in fact, when Jesus left, his disciples then did go on to fast. You look in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And we'll look in verses 1 through 3 here. Here this tells us about the the church in Antioch. Uh, There are many prophets and teachers there. Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius, uh, Menaean. And then uh, also Saul, and then in verse 2 it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We, We see, first of all, this seemed to be a general practice that had an appropriate Uh, place in their worship and service to God. And specifically, when they prepare to send off Barnabas and Saul, they intentionally prayed and fasted. And we'll talk about this more later, but I think as an expression of, of dependence upon God, that they're entrusting these people to his strength to do this work, not on their own strength. Um, but we see this as, as a practice that the early church engaged in. Just uh, a chapter later in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. As uh, Paul and Barnabas are on this missionary journey, it says there in verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
once again, as they're entrusting these people to the strength of God, to provide for them, to strengthen them in this work of shepherding, being elders, they pray and fast in demonstrating that dependence upon the Lord. And so it seems that fasting is presented throughout the scripture as something not commanded to us, not that we should set down laws, do not taste, do not touch, but that this is a practice that we as Christians should consider um, and should see as valuable in our service to the Lord. God himself rewards openly uh, the, those who fast properly in Matthew 6. But what are the proper reasons for fasting? We, we saw a lot of improper reasons uh, of kind of viewing it as bolstering my spirituality, uh, kind of uh, making myself feel superior to those around me or presenting myself as superior, doing it for more selfish motives. But what are proper motives in fasting? Well, perhaps most prevalently, we see people humbling themselves in repentance through fasting. That's what we read in Joel 2. In Joel 2, as they're experiencing this great plague, they, they come to God with penitent hearts, and that's what he's encouraging them to do, to consecrate a fast in that situation, that they might turn back to the Lord. And Joel 2, verse 12 and 13, says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Fasting is an appropriate expression of grief over our sin. Now certainly what is most important, and God makes the point here, that the genuine conviction and godly sorrow of their hearts is what it had to be the, the focus. They couldn't just rend their garments without actually rending their hearts before the Lord. But if their hearts were in the place that they needed to be, then fasting was a legitimate manifestation of that sorrow, of that godly sorrow. I, I think in this sense, it's very similar to, to bowing our heads or kneeling in prayer. Just because you get down on your knees doesn't mean that you're humbling yourself before God. Doesn't mean that your heart is the way that it needs to be. But you know what? If your heart is truly humble before God, if you are truly approaching God with reverence, you might just find yourself on your knees. I think we see the same thing with fasting. Just because you're going through the motions doesn't mean your heart is where it needs to be. But the heart that is where it needs to be very well might find fasting to be an outlet uh, of expression of that penitent and contrite heart. Uh, and I think we recognize this in, in many other areas. If I was going to come to God and confess my sins before him, I don't think any of us would think that it would be appropriate for me to come to God and put my hands on my hips in a Superman pose and then confess my sins to God. Of course not. Well, we say, well, well, well the posture doesn't matter. Well, it communicates something. I think it's the same thing with fasting. It, it's not appropriate for me to express a genuine contrition of my soul while I'm stuffing my face with pizza, right? I think we see this, this concept of expressing the affliction of our souls in some outward way. So in fasting, we can help add fervor to our prayers and provide a physical outlet for the broken heart and the contrite spirit. That's what we see fasting being. 
throughout the scriptures. In 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21, we read about Ahab. Now certainly Ahab is not an example that we want to look to in a whole lot of areas. Um, but here, specifically, God says something commendable about Ahab. God had pronounced judgment upon him and upon his household. And we read in 1 Kings uh, chapter 21 that Ahab humbled himself. And Ahab fasted before the Lord. And he tore his clothes. And God responds there saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but in his son's day. What Ahab did in this instance was not just an outward expression. He wasn't just saying, well, maybe if I do this, God will change his mind. No, God recognized this was a legitimate outward expression of Ahab's humility. And Ahab's response to what God had said. And God himself puts his label of approval on what Ahab is doing, even changes what he is going to do in judgment towards Ahab and his household because of it. We see a similar thing in Jonah, chapter 3, when Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh and says, yet 40 days and the city is going to be destroyed. What do we see the king of Nineveh doing? We see him proclaiming a fast. And he says, let no one, man or beast, taste any food or any water. Let us turn from our wicked ways. And it says there at the end of that section in Jonah 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do. Now there was a whole lot more to their repentance than their fasting. They were turning from their evil ways. But part of that was expressed in their fasting. Fasting was a legitimate outward expression of how seriously they took the sin and how committed they were to turning from their evil ways. We could go into many more examples. Nehemiah, uh, in Nehemiah 9, when he gathers the people to, to mourn over their sins of, of intermarrying with the nations around them, they proclaim a fast. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, when he mourns of the sins of Israel to God, after the seven years of, of uh, exile, fast before the Lord. Fasting in repentance is a way of saying everything else can wait. Even the most foundational necessities of life are not as important as restoring my relationship with you. My sin makes me sick to my stomach, and I can't enjoy a single bite until we've taken the time to work out this rift in our relationship that I've created. That's what fasting is intended to express. And we understand this concept in romantic relationships, right? So somebody could have such a broken heart over a relationship that they don't want to eat, they don't want to sleep, until they have processed this grief or they have resolved this rift in the relationship. How much more should that describe our relationship with God? If we truly, if our hearts truly ache over what our sins have done to our relationship with God, how much should that describe us? Now, we might think today, well, if, if there's some break in a romantic relationship, you might just go to the couch and eat a half gallon of ice cream. Uh, but what fasting is saying is, God, I'm not seeking my comfort in anything else but you. You are the only one that can bring me comfort. 
I'm not going to go seek my comfort over my sins and, and some ice cream. I'm going to seek my comfort from you and you alone. Nothing else, not even the most essential aspects of life are important in comparison to my relationship with you. And so I think we see throughout the scriptures, both by God's direct uh, approval in Joel 2, as well as many examples, this idea of fasting and humility, afflicting our souls because of our sins, and seeking to repent and turn back to the Lord. But closely related to that, I think we see fasting as well, simply humbling ourselves in petition to God. Turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, and we'll look in chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, starting in verse 3, says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord for all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. Now the situation here, the context, is there's uh, an army coming from Edom, uh, with, with many others, that is, is threatening the kingdom. Uh, and here, not because of some sin, necessarily, but simply because they recognize their utter dependence and need for God's intervention in this situation. They proclaim a fast to seek the Lord. I think we see the attitude expressed uh, later on in verse 12 as we see Jehoshaphat's prayer. Jehoshaphat says, O our God, in verse 12, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that a beautiful expression of our utter dependence upon God? And so fasting can express a mourning and a sorrow, a grief over our sins, but it can also simply express an utter dependence upon God, that we need him desperately, because we are in some dire situation. Fasting in a situation like this recognizes that there is nothing that we need more than we need God. Even the most essential elements of sustaining our lives pale in comparison to the need that we have of God himself. They are eclipsed by our need um, for the Lord. We're ultimately saying, God, you are the only thing that matters. You matter more than life itself. We see a similar instance in Ezra. If you want to turn just a, a book forward to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, as uh, Ezra and the people uh, of Israel that have been in exile are getting ready to return to the land, uh, it says here in verse 21 of Ezra chapter 8, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is, good, uh, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Here, Ezra and the people aren't mourning over some sin, but they recognize just how desperately they need the Lord. They need his protection. They need his guidance. Uh, and so by proclaiming this fast, they are in effect saying, God, you are our only strength. You are our only 
provision. You alone are the sustainer of our lives. And so we're not going to focus on anything else but you. Because we need you. And we need you desperately. Uh, And that's why fasting is often accompanied with prayer. It's an outward outward expression of our dependence upon God. That we need him more than our daily food. And we could look at many other examples of this as Esther chapter 4, where Esther is getting ready to go in to King Ahasuerus. Um, We see that she tells all the people to fast for three days in preparation of her going in to make this appeal, this entreaty for her people. Uh, And also the examples that we looked at in Acts 13 and Acts 14, when when they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul, when they uh, appoint the elders, I think this is the same type of fast that we're talking about. A fast in which we're saying, God, the work that we're getting ready to undertake of shepherding these people, the the work that we're getting ready to undertake, of of going out and spreading your word, we can't do it on our own. We have no strength or goodness of our own that's going to to fulfill this work. We need you, and we need you desperately. And so fasting in those cases was an outward expression that God, more than the very essential elements of life, we need you first and foremost. We need your strength and your guidance. But a third way that I think we see fasting uh, talked about is to increase our focus on our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember when Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And at the end of that 40 days, Satan comes to him and tempts him. And and the first thing that he tempts him to do is to turn these stones into bread. Do you remember what Jesus' response to that was? Jesus in Matthew 4 and verse 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting is intended to be an outward reminder of how much we need the nourishment of God's word in some cases. That this physical food isn't what really matters. What really matters is the nourishment of our souls. We need the word of God. Many times throughout the scripture, God's word is described as food. Uh, The the bread of life, the water of life, um, is describing Jesus and his message. Milk, meat, honey. Many times we talk about ingesting God's word in one way or another. Yet when we fail to feed ourselves spiritually, we may not immediately feel hunger pains, right? We may go a day without meditating upon God's word, and we're not immediately going to feel it. And yet, we go a day without eating physical food, our body is going to tell us right away. Right? And so, through fasting, we are reminding ourselves of how much our souls truly need the nourishment of God's word. Every hunger pang that you feel in that process is a reminder of what you should feel in your souls for God's word, for the food that he has provided, for the nourishment of our hearts. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. We see Jesus making this comparison uh, as it applies to his work for the Lord. In John chapter 4, starting in verse 31 this is after he's talking, talked to the woman at the well. 
And in verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Where's Jesus' focus? Where, where does our focus need to be? Not on our physical food. His food, he says, is to do the will of him. And so fasting is an opportunity for us to remove our focus from the physical things of life. So often, our lives, day in and day out, are focused on, I, I got to go to work, I got to make money so that I can bring home and put food on the table, right? Here, Jesus is telling us that's not what's most important. And that's not what our lives should be absorbed in. We need to take some time to make sure that our priorities are straight. To make sure that we value what is truly going to nourish us. What our spiritual life truly needs. Job in Job chapter 23 and verse 12 expresses this attitude. He says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Can you say that? Can I say that? That I've treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. Well, I eat three times a day, most days. I spend time working so that I can buy that food. I go shopping so that I can go get that food. Do I truly value God's words more than my necessary food? If not, maybe that's something we need to work on. Maybe it's something we need to put into practice. So I think throughout the scriptures, that's what we see about fasting. Fasting is an opportunity for us to express the, the humility and mourning of our hearts over our sins, to express our dependence upon God and our need for him in dire situations, and for us simply to take the time to focus on what's truly important, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I want to spend just a little bit of time towards the end and talking about how we should fast. Because if you're anything like me, this is something completely foreign to you. This is not something that, that you have, have practiced or given a whole lot of thought to. Um, well, what we see in the scriptures is there are many different kinds of, of fasting. Uh, we see different extents of fasting. In many cases, we see that there was a period of time where they went without food or water. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, when Saul of Tarsus, uh, sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. After he is blinded, it says he went three days without food or water prior to Ananias coming to him. We actually see the uh, very similar thing in Esther. Um, when Esther is getting ready to go to the king, she proclaims them not to eat food or water for a period of three days um, prior to her going into the king. However, it does seem that often there, there may have been a fasting from food and yet not from water. There, there are situations where uh, people were, were mourning. Uh, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, we see David uh, as he's pleading for, for the, uh, the child um, that he had given birth to with Bathsheba. Uh, he does not take food, it says. It doesn't specify water. And there seems to be many other cases where the implication is that they did not take food, um, but they may very well have taken water. But in some cases, we see there are 
even just certain foods that were uh, abstained from. Look in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And as Daniel here uh, is, is mourning before the Lord, starting in verse 2, it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So here Daniel is expressing his sorrow unto the Lord, and yet he does so simply by uh, eating maybe a very plain diet, similar to, to at the beginning of the book where he just has vegetables and water. Um, and when we look in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, uh, Paul seems to imply there that when people were engaged in periods of, of prayer and fasting, they would uh, abstain from uh, sexual relationships and marriage as well. Uh, and so it, it may be uh, applied in a variety of, of different ways that we are, are taking time off of even the legitimate pleasures of this life to focus on the Lord. Now that's done to different extents at different times. We also see that it is done in different lengths of time. Probably most common, we see one day fast. In fact, the, the one commanded fast that we have in the scriptures, the Day of Atonement, would have been a one-day fast. We also see in Judges 20 and verse 26, uh, as they mourn to God before a day of battle, and 2 Samuel 1, uh, and then again in 2 Samuel 3, uh, as David mourns over the death of Saul and later mourns over the death of Abner. We see he doesn't take food until evening. So it wasn't even an entire 24 hours as we would think of a day. But uh, from the moment he got up until the sun went down, uh, he fasted. Um, we also see in both Esther and in Acts 9, uh, Saul of Tarsus and Esther and the people uh, fasting for a period of three days. We see in 1 Samuel 31 that the people of Jabesh-Gilead um, fast for seven days, mourning the death of, of Saul uh, and Jonathan. Um, and then also David in 2 Samuel 12, as he is mourning over the impending death of his son, uh, mourns for a period of seven days. That, that seems to be a little bit more coincidental because it ends with the death of his son. Um, but he Seem to uh, He does not take food for that period of seven days. But then we do have three examples in the scriptures of people fasting for 40 days, being Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Uh, although in most of those cases it seems fairly clear that this was with divine intervention to provide them that strength. Uh, at least with, uh, with Elijah's case, it seems very clear that he was given the meal by the angel, and in the strength of that food he went for 40 days. Um, and so there, there's no set principle within the scriptures of, well, how long do I need to fast? When do I need to fast? How do I need to fast? Well, God doesn't give us that direction. He's not going to give us uh, do not taste, do not touch laws like, like Colossians 2 talks about. And yet we see that this practice is presented as valuable to us. Um, and so some of these specifics are, are going to be specific to individuals, specific to in situation, what is going to best express what we're trying to express unto the Lord. But let's make just a couple more points. Um, we do see very clearly in Matthew chapter 6 the idea of individually fasting, even in such a way that others are not aware of it, that this is between us and the Lord, that we're not trying to, to make this a show to others. However, 
the two examples of fasting um, that we talked about in Acts 13 and 14 were fasts, uh, uh, communal fasts. Um, multiple people involved in this fast together. So it's not that it has to be just an individual thing between us and God. There are times where we can do this together, and very often in the Old Testament they proclaimed a fast, that they might together seek the Lord in some specific dire situation. Um, and so both can be appropriate. But I, I want to close by making the point that any fasting that we undertake as God's people needs to be with the proper focus proper purpose, and the proper preparation. Remember in Matthew 9, Jesus was asked why his disciples weren't fasting. And his answer, basically, is, well, it's not an appropriate time to fast. We, we need to give thought to when is the appropriate time to fast. Uh, that it's not something that we just do because, well, you know, every, uh, you know, every Wednesday and every Friday we're going to fast. Well, that, that's kind of how the, the Jews uh, approached it, or in fact, many in the early church. Um, we see it, approach it that way. But that's not what we see with Jesus. Um, Jesus says we're, we're going to fast when it's appropriate to fast. Um, Zechariah 7, we need to make sure that it's not just for us, that it's going to make me feel better. No, this needs to genuinely be something that we're expressing to the Lord. Our faith is not in the practice of fasting. Our faith is in the one whom we're fasting for. Isaiah 58 that we read at the very beginning of our services. We need to make sure that we are engaging the inner man and allowing God to mold us more into who he wants us to be, not just going through the outward motions because we think it will make us more spiritual. Now, we need to let God genuinely transform our character through that. And if we think that just by fasting, but then going on and not reflecting Christ's character and the other things that we do from day to day, we're, we're going to somehow you know, get, get some more points with God, we completely have the wrong idea about that. Um, we need to allow it to be something done with our whole hearts. And it needs to be done with proper preparation. In 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about uh, with uh, a, agreement for a time, a husband and a wife would um, fast from one another as they spent time in prayer and fasting. There may be others that we need to talk about to this about, that, that we need to make sure that, that our fasts are, are done wisely um, in a way that, that's not going to negatively affect other people. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, you see Saul rashly proclaiming a fast, that if anybody takes any food before evening, before I have avenged my enemies, then let him be cursed. Well, what ends up happening is Jonathan, his very son, doesn't hear that. He eats some food, uh, and then Saul's in a position where, where he is according to his, his oath, supposed to put his own son to death. We need to be very careful about rashly rushing into commitments like that. Uh, and so we need to give some thought, some preparation, make sure that we have the proper purpose and the proper focus, if that is something that we're gonna, going to undertake. I hope this has been a helpful study to you. Um, I, I know there's so much information in the scriptures about it. Just the... The, the amount of information that we see within the scripture should impress us. Um, that fasting is something that God has a lot to say about. Yes, a lot to warn us about, but also a lot to commend the practice of fasting for us. And so as we face situations like you and I are facing today, as we recognize sins in our own life, um, as we recognize things that, that we need to 
utterly express our dependence on God as, as we recognize that we needed a deeper focus on spiritual things. Let's not have fasting be something that's entirely outside of our vocabulary as Christians. We see it's something that Jesus said his disciples will do, uh, that his disciples did do, and perhaps it's something that you and I need to consider doing as well. If you recognize today that there's some sin in your life, something that you need to change, don't wait to make it right with the Lord. Um, our, our sin that put Jesus on the cross, that has broken our relationship with the creator of the universe, should bring us to our knees. If, if there is some sin in our life that, that we're harboring, we, we need to pour it all out before the Lord. Um, and God, in his grace, is willing to receive us back. Do you need to do that today? If you do, if there's anywhere that we can help you in that, um, please reach out to somebody. Reach out to, to one of the members of this congregation uh, that, that we, we can encourage you, that we can help you be who God wants you to be. If you've never committed your life to the Lord, uh, we, we always want to welcome in the, the lost sheep that they might uh, bring rejoicing for the angels in heaven. God has given us that opportunity to wash away our sins in the waters of baptism, to have a hope of eternal life through the power of the resurrection. If there's anything that we can do for you today, uh, we, we ask that you will reach out and let that be known. At this time, we'll sing a song together.